Would you like me to seduce you? That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, he walks in a mind. Why the rum always Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. It's a trap! It's Christmas time for the Celluloid Fiends, Mama Cooked Tofurky, and Collard Greens. Hey guys, welcome to a holiday edition of the Celluloid Fiends podcast. Thank you as always for tuning in. We really appreciate it. And we'd also appreciate if you went over to the iTunes store uh, and left us a rating as well as a review. And if you haven't already done so, go ahead and subscribe. And when we put out new episodes, you will get notifications so you can download those and start geeking out with us over film. Uh, so you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are available. We have our podcast listed there. Uh, and you can follow us on social media at Celluloid Fiends on Facebook and Twitter, as well as Celluloid Fiends Pod on Instagram. And if you want to follow me, your host, Mo Long, you can check me out at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram. You can read my writing on film at cupofmo.com. And I write about tech at techuplife.com. And I am joined by... Ho, ho, ho. <coughs> Hey, Celluloid Fiends, it's uh, Wes Clifton. I'm a writer, I'm a musician, and I am a matinee merrymaker. Uh, if you want to check me out on social media, you can find me on Instagram at Cliff Weston. And if you'd like to check out some of my fiction writing, you can do so at my website, which is wdclifton.wordpress.com. So what all have you been watching and what have you picked up recently? Well, so I... I decided to embark on a, a watching project that took a lot of time because they're very long movies with the um, recent, I don't know what to call it, I guess, reimagining of The Godfather Part 3. Francis Ford Coppola put out uh, The Godfather Coda. It just actually came out this past Tuesday. Um, I've mentioned it a couple times on the podcast, but I'm just a huge Godfather fan. I've always been a Godfather fan. I know lots of people are, but I've just always loved those movies so much. I have probably seen at least the first two. I don't know that it would be an exaggeration to say that I've seen them a hundred times each. I don't know, but um, I've seen them a lot of times and I really love those movies. I read the the first novel um, and I even love Godfather 3. I've always been a Godfather 3 apologist, but I haven't watched any of them except the first one. Uh, in quite a few years. And so knowing that um, The Godfather Coda, or I should give it the full super long title, The Godfather Coda, The Death of Michael Corleone, uh, was coming out, I embarked on a, a rewatching of all those movies. So I rewatched all three Godfather movies and then watched, actually, I've only watched the first half of Godfather Coda so far. It's long and I've been watching our movie for tonight. But uh, so a big Godfather uh, watch for me recently which took a lot of time how long is the godfather coda it's slightly shorter than god than the original godfather part three meaning it comes in at just a little over two and a half hours um you know those movies are are so long godfather the first godfather i think is pretty close to three hours the second one is three and a half hours 
And Godfather Part Three was pretty close to three hours, but this new one they they actually trim it down a little bit. You know, the idea is the Godfather Part Three has always been really controversial. People have made a lot of complaints about it over the years. I think some of those complaints are unfounded or at least exaggerated because I think there's a lot to like about Godfather Three. Um, but this movie, he kind of like re rearranged it. He kind of did some cuts and and kind of changed the way it, the story is presented. Obviously, it's not. As far as I've been able to tell, there's no kind of like new footage. Part of me hoped secretly that they would like, here's something from the cutting room floor you've never seen before. But it's just more of a, of a reorganizing and he trimmed it down a little. So it comes in at about two and a half hours. That's pretty respectable. Yeah, yeah, pretty respectable indeed. Uh, but but it's cool. And, and like I say, I just really love that film. I think it's been uh, unfairly demonized over the years. And um, yeah, so I would encourage people to check out this new version um, of the movie. I will give that a watch, and I've been meaning to actually go back and and rewatch the Godfather trilogy. So maybe I'll make a weekend of it and watch uh, those, and then Godfather Coda. Yeah, man, I um, I was just struck once again by how many times I've seen them, and I'm still picking up new things every time I watch them. They're just they're very complex. Uh, but after that, after all that, I watched. Uh, I found some time to watch a film by another director that I really love. I've talked at length about my love of Lucio Fulci on the podcast, but I don't know yet that I've really discussed my love of John Woo, the Hong Kong film director John Woo. Uh, and I I really love his films. I've told you many times that I'd like for us to do one, hopefully pretty soon on the show. But uh, I caught up with his, as far as I know, most recent film. Uh, it was a, it came out for Netflix, a Netflix original. I think three years ago now, maybe just two, and it's called Manhunt. Uh, and it was pretty great. I really liked it a lot. I mean, it doesn't. He kind of touted it as being a, a, a turn, a return to form to some of his earlier movies, like The Killer and Hard Boiled and stuff like that. Um, you know, a return to form from his stuff that he made when he came to America, like uh, Con Air, or not Con Air, um, Face Off and uh, and uh, Mission Impossible 2 and uh, things like that. Um, but this one, it was a return to form much more so than those films, but it wasn't quite like his old stuff, but I really enjoyed it a lot. You know, it's John Woo, so there's lots of doves, there's lots of uh, slow-mo, there's lots of gunfights and cool jumping around and uh, extreme violence. It was a really great film if you like Hong Kong cinema. I need to check that one out. Still on Netflix. So anybody who's got Netflix can watch John Woo's Manhunt. I'd really recommend it, uh, especially if you love John Woo. I mean, you know, like I say, it's not going to be as good as like Hard Boiled or The Killer or something like that, but it's uh, it was a good film. It was very enjoyable. And then in terms of pickups, uh, I haven't really picked up any um, movies per se, but I did pick up the uh, Cruel Jaws novelization that came out from Severin Films a while back. Severin uh, released Bruno Matai's Cruel Jaws, which is just a blatant Jaws ripoff film, uh, which you know I'm into, <laughs> I'm into really trashy cinema. So uh, I actually haven't picked up the Blu-ray yet, but I wanted to, just in case it became increasingly rare, I wanted to snag the novelization that they did. Uh, a guy named Brad Carter, just to shout out the author, did a novelization of uh, Bruno Matai's Cruel Jaws, and it was released by Severin. And I uh, really wanted to have that on my shelf beside of my novel of Jaws. So uh, now I have that. And I also picked up the not a not a physical copy, but a digital copy of a particular score and soundtrack, which we will talk about directly. And Bruno Matai, I believe, also directed Shocking Dark, which Indeed. was that 
Terminator Aliens ripoff. Yeah, Bruno Matai, I'm not really as knowledgeable about his career as I am about someone like maybe a Fulci or something, but uh, yeah, pretty much that's his uh, his oeuvre, his, uh, is these really trashy exploitation films that for some reason I just find so fascinating and enjoyable. So hilariously, when I was looking at the show notes, <clears throat> I saw Manhunt, and it said John Woo's Manhunt, but I, I misread Manhunt at first as Manhunter. Uh, Very different film. Yeah, and yeah. I was super confused at first. Yeah, 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 yeah. This was a pretty recent film. It is based on a novel, but the novel's name is in, uh, I think, Japanese. And so I don't really remember what it is. Um, but yeah, it's cool. It's a good, good, uh, good movie. So what about you, man? What have, uh, what have you been watching and uh, picking up and stuff? So I'm I'm really excited because I actually picked up a few Blu-rays and I feel like the last couple episodes that we recorded, I, I hadn't picked up anything on physical media. I've just been kind of watching a lot of stuff off of my shelf or from my streaming service watch lists. Uh, but I recently finished watching The Haunting of Hill House, the Netflix series. Nice, nice. And I really enjoyed that and then started The Haunting of Bly Manor, which I'm most of the way through and i've uh, been loving that as well it's very different i think you watched both of those i did yeah uh, this year i watched them this year uh and yeah so it's just it's very different than hill house but it's still kind of in the same vein in a lot of ways and uh the kind of they're very stylistically similar so i've liked that a lot i've started watching some christmas movies just to kind of get in the holiday spirit mm-hmm. so i watched Home Alone, Gremlins, The Santa Claus. Uh, I also watched The Long Kiss Goodnight. Uh, just kind of a good oh. little mix of of some Christmas films, some more traditional and, and classics, as well as uh, a few kind of more unconventional films thrown in there. And then in terms of pickups, I snagged The Man with Two Brains. Oh. My, my favorite year the hidden and the thing from another world. Oh, so those that package should be getting here sometime soon. So that'll be a, a fun series of films to watch. You're talking the Howard, the Howard Hawks, uh, the thing. Oh yes. Have you, have you seen it? Uh, you know, I don't remember if I have, I think I have, I'm going to admit that I have not seen it and I've always kind of wanted to, but I never have. So I'll be, I'll be curious to hear how that is. Uh, I know I, I I've never owned a Blu-ray of it, so um, I'm hoping this one has some good extras on there that I can kind of watch after the film. And I'm thinking I might make like a weekend of it or something and watch the thing from another world, the thing, and then the thing. Yeah, it's uh, I probably should. I just realized I probably shouldn't have admitted having never seen that on the podcast. But <laughs> it is what it is, man. That's that's honesty yeah. right there. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, you know, I, f- I feel like there are a lot of films that most other people have not seen that you have seen. So, yeah, yeah, I feel like it all balances out. You know, you can't only watch stuff that uh, that's considered a classic. You got to delve into those hidden gems as well. Yeah, and have a well-rounded knowledge of film. Yeah, I always tell people, you know, you can't, you just, you can't watch them all. You can't watch them all. But I would like to watch that one. They're not Pokemon. Films are not Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot watch them all. Yeah, they're not they're not Pringles. That's <laughs> <laughs> once you pop you can't stop, right? So they are Pringles, because once you pop you can't stop. Oh yeah. Once you pop the popcorn, can't stop that either. It's true. 
And now, our feature presentation. And tonight we are talking about the 1984 classic, Silent Night, Deadly Night. So classic. Um, perhaps cult classic might be a better yeah, descriptor for say. this one. I would say so. Uh, but you know what? It is a classic nonetheless. Nonetheless. <laughs> and speaking to its cult classic status, it has a 43% critic rating with a 39% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. It had a budget of 750000 and it made $2.5 at the box office. Hey man, were you shocked that the critic rating was higher than the audience rating for this movie? I mean, neither were particularly high, but still. I was astounded. I mean, it, gr- granted, like you like you said, they're not that far off, but still I kind of expected that the critic rating would be a lot lower, particularly after seeing the feedback that several very renowned film critics actually gave this film. Yeah, it was uh, demolished at the time. It was punished, oh. you might say. <laughs> uh, so... Do you, do you want to tell us what this film is actually about? Sure. And before we go any further, I will give a, a brief warning that if any parents are listening to this episode of The Celluloid Fiend, just to let you know, this episode is not appropriate for your tiny tots. So whether they've been naughty or nice, it's probably a good idea to send them to bed before we continue this episode. Um, so you better watch out. You better not cry. Silent Night, Deadly Night is the heartwarming story of little Billy Chapman, who was traumatized as a child by his parents' Christmas Eve murder at the hands of a lunatic in a Santa suit. When grown-up Billy is forced to play jolly old Saint Nick as part of his job at the local toy store, he goes on a yuletide rampage to punish all the naughty girls and boys. Santa Claus is coming to town. And this was a West pick, so what inspired you to pick... Silent Night, Deadly Night. Oh, it is the season to be jolly. No, I, uh, I, you know, I, I feel like um, I wanted to talk about a, a holiday Christmas movie, um, but I kind of wanted to be true to my personality. And at first, I was thinking about one of the many um, action movies that I love that are set around Christmas, uh, and I suggested possibly Lethal Weapon. But then we decided that Lethal Weapon could be talked about. In, pretty much any time of the year, it'd still be good. But a movie like, uh, say, Silent Night, Deadly Night really needs to be talked about at this time of year. So I wanted to pick something kind of offbeat. And also, you know, we could have gone with something, a holiday horror classic like Black Christmas. Uh, but I wanted to pick something that maybe I wouldn't have to claim it was one of the great artistic creations of all time. I just wanted to go with something kind of schlocky and fun that I do enjoy and watch. Uh, if not every year, I watch it very frequently around the holidays. And so, yeah, we ended up with this masterpiece, Silent Night, Deadly Night. And how did you originally discover Silent Night, Deadly Night? You know, man, I don't remember. Like, I'm just a slasher movie 
fanatic and I have been um, since undergrad. And so I'm sure I just stumbled across it um, when I was, you know, researching the history of the slasher genre. It's a pretty uh, notorious, infamous film. Um, I will say that I think the first bit of footage that I had ever seen from this franchise, much like much like everyone else, was the infamous garbage day scene from Silent Night, Deadly Night Part Two. Uh, and I will say that I had seen Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2 before I saw the original movie, because when I first moved to Raleigh, uh, a friend of mine told me that a local theater was showing Silent Night, Deadly Night 2, uh, and we went to see it. And if any, and we'll talk about this a little later on. If anybody's seen the sequel, it basically rehashes. About half the film is a rehash of the first film using recycled footage. So that was very confusing and disjointed, but uh, I loved it because I love trash cinema. Uh, but so I saw that one first and then I just tracked this one down. I wanted to add it to my holiday rotation and I tracked down a Blu-ray copy of it and I really loved it. (laughs) And I'm really glad you picked this because I actually had not seen this before. This was my first watch. Although I was really confused because there is a different film, Christmas Evil, that for some reason, I got that conflated with Silent Night, Deadly Night, and I'm just going to attribute it to the fact that both films have box art that features Santa on the cover with an axe. Yeah. So pretty similar box art. But I got about 10 minutes into the film and realized I have not seen this before, so I paused it and I did a quick Google search for the plot to what ended up being Christmas Evil. And it's like, oh, okay, that's the one I saw. Also a really good Christmas slasher film and would highly recommend checking that one out. In fact, I think it could make a good double feature with Silent Night, Deadly Night. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this was my first romp through Silent Night, Deadly Night. And uh, I, I'm thrilled that you picked this one. Yeah, I'm glad. And I was actually pretty stoked when you texted me and told me that you'd actually not seen it before. I know you told me that you had thought that you had. And then when I found out that you really hadn't, I was pretty stoked because I love uh, hearing people's initial reactions to movies like this. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, although there were I, the general plot. I mean, I think like pretty much most slasher films, sure, you can, yeah, you can yeah. sort of guess Absolutely. the trajectory from the from the onset. But uh, I, I was still surprised by a lot of the specific things that, that occurred in there. And you, I'm assuming you watched the unrated cut, correct? I did. Yeah, my Blu-ray is, uh, I actually don't have the Scream Factory release that came out a few years ago, which would be awesome. It comes with like a, a I don't know if it's a Nika figure, but it's a, a figure, a figure of uh, like an action figure of Billy in the Santa suit with all of his uh, various accoutrements. And uh, I don't have that Scream Factory release. I should get it. I have the Anchor Bay uh, 30th anniversary Blu-ray, which I really love. And it does have the unrated. Uh, it has the unrated cut. And the the ad, the the footage that's been added back in, all the, the gory tidbits, um, is like a lesser quality print, which is kind of a tr- it's kind of a trend. Did you see that version, too? Yeah, and I was yeah. I was really confused at first uh, because I was I was streaming it, and I thought at first I thought is something wrong with my connection because there was a very noticeable drop in quality. <laughs> I mean, it got really dark and grainy. Yeah, and then after the watching it, when I was kind of doing some research for show notes, I found out that there was an R-rated cut as well as an unrated cut, 
and that the footage had been restored, but it was of, of low quality. So that kind of explained it. Yeah, that's uh, that's similar to I, I wasn't as taken aback by this because that's the same way that my uh, unrated version of My Bloody Valentine, the original My Bloody Valentine, when they put back in all the really graphic stuff, it looks like that as well. So I, I think that's just kind of a, a trend. And I'm really glad because if anybody knows about the history of slasher films, I mean, it's funny they seem so tame compared to things that everybody watches now like game of thrones and stuff but uh, at the time they were really controversial and they a lot of times they had they were given severe cuts to be able to make it to theaters and um so i'm really glad that a lot of that footage is being recovered and being restored into the films even if those parts that were excised are of lesser visual quality now it's just nice to be able to see those films uh as they should have been yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I was not really bothered by the drop in quality. I was just kind of surprised at first and, and a little confused. I think if I'd known that going in, I, I probably would have uh, yeah. been able to expect that a little bit more. And the Anchor Bay Blu-ray has a little warning at the first, so it tells you as soon as you start it. So that's what I wish they would do that on all the streams so people would know, because that's the Anchor Bay Blu-ray explains it very briefly at first. I'll tell you who was surprised by it. I was listening to the, the um, commentary track with a lot of the production crew, and they seemed very taken aback by it. They just couldn't figure out what was going on with that drop in quality. I guess nobody warned them what was going on. But the fascinating part is, even though the film quality is is pretty poor for a lot of the restored scenes, the effects are actually yeah. pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Like surprisingly good considering the modest budget that this film had. And, and the rest of it looks great, too, except for those, you know, those the only parts that are lower quality are the really kind of gory parts that were put back in. The rest of it actually looks pretty good uh, in the restored version. Absolutely. Uh, and and it's a it's a pretty bare bones film insofar oh, yeah. as effects for the most part. It's mostly, uh, I would guess, just kind of filmed on sets or, or on location and relies on mostly a lot of decor but then when there are those moments with effects they're just fantastic like there's that one scene when uh, uh one character denise played by linnea quigley is killed and she's impaled on some antlers yeah <laughs> and the antlers you actually see them poking through the skin before they pop through and it's this really gruesome yeah. kill but i mean the effects are are more realistic than even a lot of kind of cg kills that i've seen yeah and that's one of the restored bits obviously uh that would not have made it into the r-rated cut because you like you said you see those antlers like pierce her stomach what's funny is um there was there was an interview of uh, an audio interview with the director charles charles sellier Cellier, I think I'm saying that right. Uh, and he he tells some things that the rest of the production crew uh, dispute. And so one of the things that the director says, he he claims that they made that kill up on the spot, that at first he was uh, Billy was supposed to kill her with his, his axe uh, and that they just kind of thought on the spot. They saw these like great lights that were on set and they could do some stuff with shadows. And then he was like, well, we can have her impaled. But the production crew disputes that they're like, no, that was in the script. One of them said that they had the original shooting script still and it was there. And they were like, you know, you'd have had to have the uh, plastic torso to do that effect with. So I, I tend to fall uh, on that side that it must have been scripted from the jump. Yeah, it did. I mean, that seems like it would be so much work to kind of do an impromptu kill like right. that. Yeah, but it's awesome. <laughs> it's a very infamous scene from this movie. Yeah, and uh, this is a very controversial film. Very controversial. In fact, 
Uh, and a lot of that derived from the killer Santa Claus. Yeah, people freaked out. People, uh, parents uh, especially, uh, freaked out. Which is is a little weird because I think it was was it Tales from the Crypt? Yeah. Uh, that preceded yeah. this and actually had a killer Santa Claus. Yeah, right. There's a segment in, in the original Tales from the Crypt film, which I think I have that somewhere in the show notes, but I think it came out in what, 72? Was it, was it 72? Yeah, in 1972. Uh, and it, there's a segment called And All Through the House that features a killer Santa. And I've actually not seen Christmas Evil. You have, if I'm not mistaken, Christmas Evil, which preceded this film by about four years, has a killer Santa. Am I right about that? You are correct in that, uh, and that came out in 1980. So yes, that preceded this by four, four years. So I'm not. I, yeah, I don't really understand why that particular aspect of this film well, created such a stir. But based on my research, uh, as far as I can tell, the thing that made this movie such an outrage was the advertising campaign. Uh, you know the the trailer that featured a killer Santa Claus and the poster art that featured Santa's arm coming up out of the chimney with holding an ax. Uh, they weren't particularly precious about uh, who that went out to. Uh, the trailer aired during football games. It aired during family friendly programs like uh, three's company and little house on the prairie. So little kids were sitting around watching it and were just horrified apparently. And so then they started getting all these complaints from parents um, you know, about they're saying my children are terrified of Santa Claus now because of this movie. And it just spitballed. It, it ran into, you know, there was already uproar about uh, slasher films. You know, uh, uh, even government officials at the time were starting to comment on the the violence in, in motion pictures. And so I think it just the combination of the advertising campaign, which was not particularly well placed or was it? Um ginned up all this controversy and just kind of met and joined in with the wave of anti-slasher sentiment that was already going on in certain uh, quarters. And, you know, the really interesting part about that is it kind of mimics the plot of this actual film, which is that there's this uh, young kid, Billy, and he has a fear of Santa instilled in him at a young age it the seed is sort of planted with this visit to his grandfather who is in a mental institution and will not speak he hasn't uttered a word in quite a long time and while the parents are out of the room and billy's with his grandfather the grandfather warns him that santa claus is going to punish him and if he if he's been naughty and then on the way on the drive back, you this killer Santa guy dressed up as Santa Claus holds up a convenience store, shoots the cashier, pretends his car is broken down, stops the uh, family car, and Billy sees his parents killed by Santa Claus. Yeah, uh, yeah, pretty rough, uh, pretty rough uh, Christmas Eve for for a young boy to have. Uh, and, you know, it's all like this perfect storm where uh, his mom had just said something. Uh, I don't remember exactly what it was, but something not particularly nice about the grandfather for when they found out that he scared the kid. And the kid was like, you shouldn't talk bad about old people. Santa Claus, that's naughty. Santa Claus is going to punish you. And then the mom's like, Santa Claus doesn't punish people. And then this all happened, which 
in his mind proved her wrong. It's all kind of the, the perfect storm of wrong circumstances. Yeah. Uh, totally. It was, it was very coincidental in, in a lot of places. <laughs> right. Uh, but one, one aspect of that, which I enjoyed quite a bit is sort of the psychological element that you see, because it, it, I was, as I was watching the film and kind of mulling it over in my head, uh, while taking some notes, I was thinking about other slasher films and, Oftentimes you don't really get a glimpse into the psyche of the of the killer at all. And in this one, you very clearly understand Billy's fear of Santa as well as the reason that he has this very rigid notion of being naughty and the necessary punishment that being naughty uh, uh, comes with um, uh, par- part of that is kind of what his grandfather says, but it's also uh, inc- inspired by his time at this orphanage, which is run by nuns. And any time that anyone misbehaves, they're punished. Yeah, and uh, the mother superior is a pretty harsh. Uh, she believes in a pretty rigid and harsh punishment system and she even at one point says something like punishment is good or something like that you know to to kind of inspire his uh, sort of warped sense of morality and you know as someone who went to catholic school back in the day i cannot fault billy for uh, being afraid of the nuns i i did not have that experience <laughs> but in my head i always would hope that it would be more like uh, sister act than this but uh yeah you know <laughs> oh hey you know sister act one of my favorite films. Also, The Trouble with Angels is another oh, cherished that. classic hmm. with uh, with nuns in it. So, yeah, no, that's uh, there. There's some <laughs> there's some good nuns there. Uh, but the other uh, component to this film that I, I found in- really intriguing is that the uh, c- protagonist that we have is actually the killer, right? Right. And right. you you see the film unfold through. Billy's eyes and it was a very strange lens through which to view the events of the movie. Yeah. You know, I didn't think about it like that until you said that. That's interesting. It kind of uh, similar to he walked by night, which uh, we talked about last time uh, had a, had a lot of focus on the, uh, on the bad guy as a, as the protagonist, as the, or uh, anti-hero as it were. Totally. And it, uh, I, I did not feel this with He Walked by Night, but with Silent Night, Deadly Night also has night in the title. Uh, <laughs> but uh, with this, I, I didn't find myself in any way agreeing with Billy's choices, but I, I still was able to kind of f- feel bad for him a- as a character because he, he had this traumatic experience. Uh, yeah, I, that's interesting, man. I hadn't really thought about all the psychological aspects and I was listening to, uh, that interview we were talking about with the director, uh, which was really interesting to hear that and then contrasted against the, um, the commentary track, which he was not involved in, but the writer was involved in. And, uh, one of the, uh, I think one of the producers or executive producers and, uh, Perry Botkin, the composer and a couple other people were involved in the commentary and the director of this film 
is one of those people who I think views himself more as an artiste and uh, is kind of ashamed that he ever did this film. Whereas the production crew on the commentary seem to just be having a really good time and like kind of realize that it is what it is. It's a schlocky cult classic and just kind of uh, seem to be appreciating it for what it is. Uh, but yeah, he, he mentioned the director uh, mentioned, you know, how he really wanted to focus on the psychological trauma and how he wanted to portray kind of like you said, you don't want to agree with his choices, but he wanted to portray like how this came about, what all these circumstances that came together to turn Billy into a psychopath. And I thought that was incredibly effective, especially when juxtaposed with kind of a lot of those mindless killers who are supposed to be pure evil, like, uh, you know, like Michael Myers or uh, Freddy Krueger or something like that. And and so I, I thought that was a, a really wise choice that the film made. And I almost wondered if the kind of visit to the grandfather at the beginning was supposed to also maybe insinuate that uh, mental illness kind of ran in the family. I wasn't, I wasn't really sure what to, what to make of that. And the film doesn't explore that uh, notion at all. So I don't think there's necessarily an answer, but it was something that kind of stuck in my mind uh, uh, in that scene early on in the film. You had a you had a thought provoking take on this film. I feel <laughs> I feel like I watched it and I and I just am like, man, I love cheesy, cheesy, trashy movies like this. And and <laughs> I feel like you're drawing out these deep uh, deep insights about the film. Yeah, um, I, I'd never said that before. But you know, by by the same measure, I, I'm glad you brought up uh, just how kind of cheesy and fun it is because I I do ultimately think that's where this film does succeed. Like it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it is it is in no way a, a character study, even though it does have that kind of psychological aspect to it. It's in no way like a character study. Uh, it's it's mostly just kind of fun, creative uh, slasher. Yeah, stuff. I was describing the film to you, and I said it's trash, but it's fun trash. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's it's a nice little piece of holiday cheer uh, for people with macabre sense of humor like myself. Um, yeah, and you know, it, I found this very humorous, and I'm kind of curious. Did you think this was a a black comedy, a dark comedy? So I, I don't know that I would go so far as to lump it and uh, is to lump it into that category. I think the sequel definitely, uh, definitely is. I think that the, I think that the creators of this film definitely intended it to have humor have dark humor scattered throughout. I mean, how could you not? I mean, there's just so many parts in it where you couldn't you couldn't but think that it was meant to have a sort of uh, devious and macabre humor behind it. I mean, you know, it's a man in a Santa suit running around yelling punish and naughty and, and killing people. Uh, so yeah, I think it was definitely intended to have comedic elements, but I don't think this movie leaned. I don't think this movie leaned far enough into comedy to be listed as like a horror comedy or something. Whereas I think the sequel, uh, you know, probably you would want to list it that way. What about you? what did you think? I had a similar take on this uh, and I was almost a little taken aback by some of the humor that's peppered in there, especially after the opening, which is, is pretty grim, but yeah, uh, some of the humor I think was just kind of unintentional, Uh, but there were also some very intentional humorous moments, including uh, I think one of my favorite scenes was when Billy ends up, getting this job uh in the departments in a department store like a toy store 
and he is forced into playing the role of Santa, which you can imagine how that goes. Yeah, right. And there's this, there's this little girl sitting on his lap, and she's clearly uncomfortable, like trying to square away. And he's like, "No, you need to be nice. If you're naughty, you're going to get punished." And uh, she just kind of like freezes in terror, and then you it pans to the uh, uh, who is presumably her mom, the little girl's mom, and she goes he is just so good with children. <laughs> and I just started cracking up. I thought that was a, a brilliant moment. And that was, a, that was definitely intended as humor. Oh yeah. Yeah. And there was a lot of stuff that was intended as humor. You could tell throughout the film, uh, you know, in that scene, I always get distracted looking around the toy store at all the awesome eighties toys uh, that are all around there. I noticed like a crawl board game and like all these vintage Halloween masks and all kinds of, uh, awesome toys, all kinds of star Wars stuff. So it's always a little distracting for my wandering eyes in that scene. That was one of my favorite segments, the kind of part where Billy is working in the toy store, Iris Toys, because of how vibrant that set was and seeing all those toys in there, uh, which are toys that, you know, actually like existed. Oh, yeah. Uh, And it it really kind of anchored the film in a, a specific era uh, and and it was just kind of very vibrant, all the toys on the shelves, coupled with the Christmas decorations, like an animatronic Santa and, and kind of those big light, uh, the big bulbs hanging around. And the music, which we can talk about a little later, but like the, the song that plays during that um, kind of toy store montage is called The Warm Side of the Door. Uh, and it was written for the film. Uh, and it just it sounds like such a you would think it was just a traditional 80s hear it on the radio Christmas song. It just has this warm, bright feeling. Uh, I just think the music in this movie is so great, but we can, we can talk about that in more de- detail later, but I think that adds a lot to the scene. That montage was riotously funny. I, yes. that, and that, I don't know if it was intended to be comedic, but there's this kind of bright, cheery Christmas music uh, playing and it's this montage of Billy working in the store and seeing and seeming so, uh, so normal and like he really has his shit together. And there are even moments where one of the uh, stock room employees is offering to give uh, Billy some sort of alcoholic beverage and, and Billy turns it down and, and takes a sip of, out of his milk carton and I was just laughing so hard because A, it was a little cheesy uh, and all these tropes, but B, you knew the entire reason this was in the film was as a setup for him to just absolutely snap. Yeah. And I also love that during that, the only kind of like, as far as I can remember, the only nod to his mental problems is they unfurl this like Christmas banner and it has Santa Claus on it. And they're all looking at it and smiling and Billy's smiling. And then he sees Santa and his face just like, drops when he sees santa just it's that brief moment so i I thought that that montage was really well done yeah i i thought that was brilliant and actually one thing that i wrote down uh during that sequence which ended up being true was a lot of the film just seems like a setup (laughs) oh yeah 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 for sure 
Um, what, do, what, what do you think about that? I, I think um, it's actually one of my complaints about this film and, and the and the commentary track the production crew commented on as well. I think the first of this film, while I don't know what I would have cut out, if anything, I think it does kind of drag a little bit. Like It takes a long time to get into the slashery goodness after the initial you know, parent murder and stuff. It takes a really long time to get into the slashery parts. Yeah. So I, I thought it dragged a little bit as well. I, I didn't. And, and, and it is one of my few minor quibbles with this film. I, I don't think it dragged to the point where I was about to doze off or, uh, or just shut it off or anything, oh, no, no. but I, I felt like you know maybe a little bit could have been shaved off the uh, first third to the first half right. to kind of get into the action a little bit because it it definitely felt like all right this is this is just it setting it up okay we're setting it up uh, and, but then the the finale I, I think you get a big payoff yeah for sure and of course if you would have cut it down I mean even the unrated longer cut of this film is only 85 minutes long. So if you'd have cut it down too much, I mean, you know, you're not even looking at a feature length film anymore. Uh, so yeah, I don't know what could have been done about that, but it just, it does drag a little bit in the early parts, but like you said, not, not terribly bad. And, and even when it is dragging a little bit, there's character development being done and backstory being laid down, which sounds crazy to say about, um, Silent Night, Deadly Night, but you know, they're setting things up. Uh, yeah, no, uh, uh, I it was it was some good setup. Uh, the only thing I can maybe think to improve it would be potentially shaving some off the the front half and then kind of extending the the slasher yeah. sequences at the end. Agreed. Uh, either just elongating one of those uh, uh, scenes or even just adding another. Or having a chase, you know, most uh, slasher movies have a have a chase scene at some point in them, and I, unless I'm wrong, this movie didn't. I don't remember a chase scene really. So I mean, they could have added something like that in to to give it, you know, take some more time, but but be in the slasher portion of the film. Yeah, no, you're right. There was there was no chase scene, so it yeah. kind of broke from convention a little bit. Now you you mentioned the music some, and. Uh, I want to I want to touch on that because something that I, I was really surprised to find out was that a lot of the score was actually improvised. Oh, you know, I don't know that I knew that. Yeah. So the composer was uh, Perry Botkin Jr. And s- reportedly he improvised a lot of the score while he was watching a work print version of the film on Betamax. Nice. Well, I'll say this then. He did a wonderful job because I've seen a lot of 80s slasher movies. I, I love horror movies, but slashers tend to be one of my top favorite subgenres. And uh, and this this score was great. I mean, it was it was top notch. It was better than a lot of its peers. Uh, I really liked. Well, a I just love kind of like that. I don't know how else to describe it. That kind of cheesy 80s electronic score sound that this film had um i in the commentary track perry botkin mentioned that this was his first electronic score he had done uh so i really like that sound but i love the fact that it was like all this dissonant noise and like kind of classic horror stuff blended with sort of more christmasy sounding uh sounds not even necessarily Christmassy music for the score part uh but but just kind of Christmassy sounds and Christmassy sounding instruments mixed into the the more horror suspense building type music 
Yeah, because the holiday backdrop extends even to the score, which I, I thought was I thought was really brilliant, and I thought that helped to. I'm curious what you thought about this, but I felt like that helped to kind of elevate the film a bit because admittedly it did have for the time kind of a lower budget and there are some kind of uh, places where you can see a, a dip in quality. Kind of we mentioned the the film quite literally is lower quality and those scenes that were restored, unfortunately, um, you know, which can't really be helped. But I thought the the soundtrack was very premium and and kind of helped to separate this from a lot of the other low budget horror films and and slashers that I've seen. You and I have both talked at length about our love of scores and how much we think they can add to a film and I would certainly say that's true of this one. I mean, like I was just saying it's it's one of the better slasher movie scores I can think of. I just really enjoyed it the whole time. I just thought it added a lot to the movie. It was it added tension when it needed to add tension. It even maybe added some levity when it needed to add levity. Um, it was just a really a, a great score that really fit the feel of this movie. Totally. And then the uh, songs which were written for the film by Morgan Ames, uh, you mentioned The Warm Side of the Door, and there's also Santa's Watching. Uh, I loved both of those because I felt like there was a nice juxtaposition between kind of some of the more bleak elements of the film and kind of the jo- the jolly, happy music that was playing in the background. I've gotten so into uh, movie music this year that... Um maybe that's the reason why this was the first time that I really paid a lot of attention to the music in this film. I've seen it several times, but I really noticed the music uh, on this watch and Morgan Ames songs made my season. They made, (laughs) I went and went to iTunes and downloaded. That's what I was saying earlier. A digital copy of this. I downloaded a digital copy of the, uh, of the score and soundtrack. It came together. Uh, and just those songs that were written, uh, Morgan Ames, wrote for this film were so good like you said they they really sound like um classic holiday fare that you would hear on the radio but if you listen to especially some of them there's this like subtle creepiness to them especially santa's watching santa's santa's watching santa's creeping now you're nodding now you're sleeping uh at one point it says uh can you hear him in the night uh and it says uh, have you been good for mom and dad, Santa knows if you've been bad. All this stuff, it's so funny. But if you weren't paying attention to the lyrics, it just sounds like a real Christmas song. And I just thought it was great. You know, she wrote, uh, she and her collaborators wrote 10 songs for the film. Uh, and so there's there's actually 10 of those songs that are all great. And they all sound kind of different uh, on the the soundtrack. And uh, apparently they had, they had intended to release it as an album, but it was uh, the controversy sort of killed that. Uh, concept oh that's a bummer because i bet that would have been phenomenal and uh the the morgan ames tracks kind of mimic the genius of the hidden genius of this film which is that it taps into that uh idea of of santa which if you think about that in a vacuum right the concept of someone who knows if you're sleeping and knows if you're awake and knows if you've been bad or good actually sounds on paper yeah. kind of terrifying and, yeah. and stalkerish uh and 
uh, it, it, I thought beautifully used that idea and, and kind of subverted the idea of the, the jolly fat Santa. Yeah. He watches you all the time. He comes into your house, uh, whether you want it or not. Uh, you know, I think that's probably why, uh, in more recent years, the concept of Krampus and black Peter and stuff like that have become, uh, kind of more popular in, uh, American uh, audiences, especially like American horror movie audiences. Yeah, I, th- I think you're you're probably correct about that. Uh, but with that, we're going to take a break, and then we will keep breaking down Silent Night, Deadly Night. Twas the night before Christmas. When all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. Hey guys, we are talking about Silent Night, Deadly Night, the very controversial cult classic from 1984. Yeah, and uh, I know we mentioned a little bit about the controversy earlier in the episode, but I wanted to kind of revisit a little bit because uh, I don't think we delved really deep into the controversy, which is the main thing that people talk about when they remember uh, this film. And... uh, so the movie was released uh, by TriStar Pictures on November 9th, 1984. Uh, and as we said earlier, there was a lot of controversy and outrage almost immediately due to the marketing campaign featuring a uh, killer Santa. People were upset. The PTA fought to have the film taken out of theaters. Uh, a group called Citizens Against Movie Madness uh, arranged a lot of protests. There were protests outside theaters all across the country that were showing this film, including the East Coast premiere uh, in the Bronx was uh, picketed by protesters who were outside singing Christmas carols, which is a protest that I would have just really loved to have uh, walked by and seen. Uh, but And also I'll say um, that Siskel and Ebert uh, condemned the film, not surprisingly. They were very harsh on a lot of the slasher phenomenon, uh, with Gene Siskel reading off the names of the production crew on air and with the message, shame on you, and calling it uh, blood money, all the money it was making. Uh, I know you're a big Siskel Niebert guy. That's the reason why I've just part of me has always, I don't know, got my hackles up about them just because they were so harsh on slasher movies and I love them so much. Yeah. I, and I think that's a a fair critique of, of two of my favorite critics, but I, (laughs) I do tend to, I do tend to really love Ebert because what he often did is he would approach his 
reviews of films from the perspective of a fan of that genre, which I think is really what you have to do. Uh, you know, you can't compare the Silent Night, Deadly Night right. to like a Kubrick film. Right, they're, right, right. they're apples and oranges. Like you have to think, okay, so how is someone who is a slasher fan going to appreciate this film? Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I do think... I don't think the movie is is without its issues, uh, which which we'll no. get to in a moment. But I, I don't think it quite warrants reading off the entire uh, you know production. They were similarly uh, cast list. They were similarly harsh on Friday the Thirteenth. Uh, so you know, um, and both those movies, uh, especially Friday the Thirteenth, have had quite a life since then. So, but anyway, so all this uh, all this uproar caused the film to be pulled by TriStar uh, from theaters 15 days after its release. Uh, it was later redistributed by uh, Aquarius Films in May of 1985, uh, but it had been out of theaters for all that time. One thing that I've always found really interesting about all this is that uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night opened on the same day as Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street and actually outperformed Nightmare on Elm Street uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night pulled in $1,432,800 on its opening weekend. So it was actually outperforming Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street until it was prematurely pulled from theaters, which I just think is wild. I mean, at the time, people didn't know A Nightmare on Elm Street. And obviously, though Wes Craven had done some horror cult classics, he was not the the name that he is today. So people would, you know... Nowadays, we think of A Nightmare on Elm Street as just one of the big all-time great horror movies, but at the time, it was just an unknown film. But I just find that fascinating that these two films came out on the same day, and Silent Night, Daily Night was outperforming Nightmare on Elm Street initially. And it's kind of cool to speculate about what would have happened if this hadn't been pulled. I mean, perhaps this would have gone on to have a franchise of the same caliber and same renown as Nightmare on Elm Street. I Perhaps, think it's, you know, the roles would have been reversed. I think it's possible, but I will say, I mean, just fairly looking at the two films, I think a lot of what uh, made this movie so initially um, successful was the controversy. People, you know, controversy breeds interest, and I think people were probably flocking to theaters to see what was this movie that was causing all the uproar. If you look at the two films, I mean. A Nightmare on Elm Street is clearly the superior film. And so I think for that reason alone, it would have still in the end had more lasting uh, staying power than than Silent Night, Deadly Night, as it does today, in my opinion. And that anecdote you told about the protesters who picketed and sang Christmas carols, you know, one one does have to wonder whether some of the Christmas carols they sang included Santa's watching. Santa's waiting. Uh, uh, yeah, you know that I, I just, I really feel like I'm going to add that one into my repertoire of, of holiday songs every year. Uh, but I wanted to read off. So the Blu-ray, the Anchor Bay Blu-ray, one thing that I love is they have a special feature called Santa's Stocking of Outrage, which is just a collection of various quotes and bits from, uh, reviews at the time that, uh, basically were just really shellacking this film. Uh, so here's a few of my favorites that I picked out. Licking road tar off of an automobile uh, would be more pleasurable than watching Silent Night, Deadly Night. Not since Friday, <laughs> <laughs> not since Friday the Thirteenth, the final chapter, has there been such a repulsive piece of garbage. Uh, and then <laughs> here's another: What quality of diseased mind does it take to perpetrate this hideous concept upon the public? Just avoiding going to see this film isn't adequate punishment for those who made it. 
<laughs> Punish. <laughs> and finally, I wanted to include this one just because we are uh, a triangle-based podcast, and this is one from the Raleigh, North Carolina News and Observer uh, at the time. <laughs> So it says, Silent Night, Deadly Night is one of those rare films that should be graded according to blood type rather than content. Before this slasher film is done, 12 people have been murdered, nine of them by a homicidal maniac in Santa Claus drag. People are, <laughs> people are impaled, beheaded, shot, garroted, stabbed, and axed. It's enough to make a vampire gag. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those are, those are some gems right there. Yeah, I, I love it. <laughs> And, you know, I I do feel like those reviews were uh, uh, pretty harsh. And But, you know, like I mentioned, this film is not flawless. No. <laughs> so uh, before, before I delve into these, I, I do feel like I should preface this by saying I had a lot of fun watching Silent Night, Deadly Night. But there were there were several plot holes that just didn't make any sense. So uh, to begin, there's that visit to the grandfather and there's that warning from the granddad, which uh, he, the grandfather says, you know, have you been naughty or nice grant? Uh, you know, Santa's going to punish those who have been naughty. And I was just kind of really confused whether that was something the grandfather actually said or something that Billy kind of imagined because it just seemed way too coincidental, particularly because you knew it was going to be some kind of setup. Yeah. Yeah, I I think it could be interpreted either way. I think the fact that he doesn't speak until he's alone with Billy and then the fact that he's looking straight ahead the same as he was when they left um, – after you know when the parents come back I, I i think could leave that open to interpretation either way my own interpretation is always just that it actually did happen the grandpa's just a, a loon and he uh and he just chooses that moment for some reason to uh really give it to young billy and scare him to death but i could i could see that being interpreted either way that's kind of my that was my initial reaction uh, and what i think was probably intended but that's actually the scene that kind of sparked that idea for me about you know perhaps there's some mental illness running in the family and, and billy's just imagining this and there was some kind of subconscious fear of santa already checks out because the sequel uh is uh you know the the killer in the sequel is his brother his younger brother ricky so a uh, spoiler alert sorry <laughs> except uh the the ending of the film i think very heavily implies that the brother is going to take up the Santa killer mantle. Yeah. And if you've seen this film, uh, you've, you've seen half of Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 anyways. So. <laughs> uh, a few other things that just were really kind of, uh, a little befuddling to me. So one was the killer Santa at the beginning that traumatizes Billy, uh, young Billy. So he holds up a convenience store, for the money and ends up killing the cashier and takes the money. And then he f pretends that his car has broken down and flags down Billy's family as they're driving by. But then he doesn't wait for them to get out of the car. He just pulls a gun and Billy's dad tries to drive away. And then he kills the dad and, he tries to rape the mom and then ends up killing her. And it was just really confused. Like what 
this guy's motivation was because initially it kind of seemed like he was pulling off a string of robberies or something. And then I, I was like, I don't know what his logic is with the, you know, when, when the family rolls up, like he doesn't wait for them to get out of the car. He doesn't try to get in their car. He just like pulls a gun while they're still in the car and capable of driving away. Yeah, I think for that one, I mean, I really think there isn't a lot of logic to it. I think that, <laughs> I think for that one, um, really his motivation is just bloodlust, right? I think if you really wanted to give him some kind of motivation, I would say probably that he's a person who just doesn't care. He's at the end of his rope, doesn't care about using violence. He wanted to stick up that store, but when the store owner tried to resist, he just killed him because he doesn't have any qualms about it. And I think maybe a similar situation is going on with the when he with the parents and when he kills them, because I think my, my interpretation was that his initial intention was to steal their car. Like he had the gun cause he was going to steal their car. Maybe his car really did break down. I don't know. And he was going to steal their car. But when the dad tried to drive away, once again, he doesn't mind killing people and he just kind of, uh, rampaged. Okay. I'll, I, uh, I, I think the, the bloodlust, uh, explanation is that that's pretty satisfactory now, to me. That being said, <laughs> how does he not, find Billy when he goes looking for him and Billy is really clumsily hidden in the, that brush beside the road. I mean, it, that seems almost impossible that he wouldn't have found Billy. I kept waiting. I didn't remember and I kept waiting for like him to get hit by a car in front of Billy or something. But I was like, how did he not find Billy? I was confused how Billy and his baby brother made it out of that alive. Yeah, actually. Exactly. I mean, you would think that's why I just kept waiting on like a cop to show up and kill that guy and take them home or, you know, somebody to hit him. And then the Santa Claus and then be like, oh, no. And when he got out to investigate, find the two children. I mean, I, I, something like that had to have happened, but it's not shown. No, it just it just kind of cuts away from that. And, and then uh, it, it's a few years in the future and, and Billy's at the orphanage. Uh, so then another, a couple other things that, that were a little confusing. Uh, one was like the whole, uh, scene with, with Pamela and Andy, two of, uh, Billy's coworkers at the toy store. So Andy, uh, tries to, he tries to rape Pamela. And actually while we're on this, I did not like all the rapey elements in the film, like at the beginning when Killer Santa, you know, tries to rape the mom and then and then with Andy. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I um, I thought it was just kind of unnecessary. Well, I think that um, I think that that's something that shows up for some reason a lot in these older um, exploitation type movies. I don't know why. Uh, it, like you, it makes me very uncomfortable. I don't like it. Uh, but I will say one thing I was glad about with this film is that neither actually turned into an actual rape scene, thankfully, um, which just thankfully, that's it. <laughs> it still doesn't make them comfortable to watch, but I was just very thankful for that. Uh, I, I agree. I was, I was glad that neither of those um, actually, uh, you know, proceeded any further. Um, but when, so I was really uh, kind of befuddled after, after this moment. So Billy stops Andy from trying to rape Pamela and kills Andy, but then Pamela is really mad that Billy killed Andy, and I I couldn't figure out what was going on. Like maybe she was just in shock, yeah, or or what. But I was just kind of a little confused by her reaction. Um, My since take. Billy kind of saved her. Billy did save her. My take on that one is, I mean. A she probably is in shock. She's probably traumatized, and also <laughs> yeah. then you see your sweet 
kind-natured co-worker Billy, who's been nothing but kind this whole time, come in in a Santa suit, use a string of Christmas lights as a garrote, lift Homeboy up off the ground by like three feet and strangle him to death with a, with a string of Christmas lights and then turn around to her. I mean, let's let's be fair. She's had a rough night. The The Christmas light string kill was it was that was one of my favorite kills in awesome. the in the film because and i was kind of hoping there would be a few more of those uh and and there were a, uh, kind of in the in the third act yeah but a few more kind of kills with kind of seasonal objects yeah that would have been cool like uh like a uh sharpened peppermint stick or something a, a candy cane i don't know why i called it a peppermint stick but you know it's something like that <laughs> yeah you know uh I, I think i think there were there was some potential to have a few more of those down the line uh one plot point that was a little bonkers to me was uh so after uh, billy ends up killing andy and then pamela and he kills uh the, the store owner as well he kills everyone who works in the store um but after that he shows up at the, just this random house yeah where these two people, uh, there's this couple, Denise and Tommy, and they're getting down on, on a pool table, and Billy just kind of shows up and uh, kills both of them. Uh, I, he, I guess, punishes them for being naughty, because there is that scene uh, when he's when he's a little and he's at the orphanage, and he's looking through a keyhole, and he sees these two uh, uh, teenagers having sex, and Mother Superior explains that they were being naughty and and they need to be punished but what how did he know that he would show up at a house where people were being naughty and he needed to punish them i was i was just kind of unclear about that entire segment mo he sees you when you're sleeping and he knows when you're <laughs> awake he knows if you've been bad or good so be good for goodness sake uh no he um I would say for that, A, that's just an excuse for them to have some killing. We should say that Denise is played by Linnea Quigley, the Scream Queen. Love seeing her in anything. I love any of these people who have just made sort of a career out of horror. Uh, The horror community embraces that, and I love it. Um, But so I think that this scene was interesting because it's sort of like takes to heart and is an extension of what really started in slasher movies as an accidental trend, which was the bad kids being punished by the killer right like movies like scream sort of presented that as a as a rule of slasher movies that that if you were bad you were killed uh which really you know john carpenter said about halloween that wasn't really his intention uh friday the 13th kind of leaned into it a little more intentionally but that just kind of became a thing with slasher movies and uh this movie obviously is a as an extension of that whereas he's intentionally punishing he's set out to punish people being bad uh, I don't know how he would have known people were being bad in the house. I would assume, if I had to guess, that when she hears the sleigh bells, which are from his outfit, maybe he's looking in a window or something, even though I kind of get the impression that they're down in a basement uh, when they're uh, going to town on each other. But uh, maybe he's looking in through a window or something. I also think that if they, this is another place where they could have extended the movie a little bit, because I think if he would have went to another house and done some other kills you could have kind of assumed that he had just entered this neighborhood and was going to, from house to house and kind of looking in the window and seeing if anybody was being naughty. That So that, interestingly, is kind of what I thought would happen next. I, I figured maybe he would kind of go on a rampage in the neighborhood. But then he ends up in the woods, uh, and and 
there's this scene where there are these two kids sledding and it's deep in the woods. It seems to be late at night and it's Christmas Eve. So I'm not entirely sure why the kids were kind of sledding in, in the remote woods. And then two older bullies show up and they somehow know that the sledders will be there and they take the sleds and then Billy ends up punishing the bullies. And there's actually a really, uh, this was one of my favorite uh, kills as well, but Billy ends up decapitating one of the bullies and you find this out because he's sledding down the hill and you see the head just topple off of the body as, as the sled gets to the bottom of the hill. Yeah. Call me a sicko, but that's actually my favorite kill in the movie. I don't know why. I just love, he's sliding down the hill. He's a jerk. Anyway, we already hate him because he's like stolen this, this sled from these kids and uh, he's coming down the hill and Billy just jumps out out of nowhere. Like you said, they seem to be deep in the woods. Billy jumps out uh, and says naughty and just chops his head off with the ax, which I think, maybe the first actual axe murder in the film, even though he's carrying that axe the whole time uh, and chops his head off with that axe. And then the sled comes down and this headless corpse, which actually looks <laughs> really good uh, is on the sled. And his friend is just horrified. And then the head just comes rolling down the hill after it. Uh, it's my favorite kill, which like I say, call me a sicko, but uh, <laughs> that part was like you say, it doesn't make a ton of sense. Uh, the kids were out there because, in their words, they found this hill with virgin snow out there. Of course, why were they out there in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve? Uh, but then, like you say, how did the bullies find them out there? How did Billy find them out there? Who knows? Yeah, but uh, I mean, I, I kind of like you. I, I really loved that uh, that kill because it was the kind of thing where you knew that the something was going to happen. You knew you knew Billy was going to. Uh, bring about their demise in some capacity, but I thought the reveal was really creative the way that you just kind of see the sled coming down and then the head tumbles. Uh, I I thought that was a very clever unveiling. Uh, And I also liked it because kind of like I mentioned with the, with the Christmas light kill, I was hoping there would be kind of some more kind of Christmassy murders throughout the end. And I I thought that one was, uh, I, you know, I'll lump that in there. It was, it was a seasonal slaying. Yeah. 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 Sled killing. Sure. Yeah. The, the initial, the initial name of this film, the shooting title was sleigh ride. S L A Y. (laughs) Uh, I almost wish they'd gone with that. I kind of do, but I actually really like the title Silent Night, Deadly Night. I mean, there have been, and and we can talk in a minute, there have been other holiday slashers. Uh, In 1972, there was a holiday slasher called Silent Night, Bloody Night. And uh, actually, apparently, um, Black Christmas was at one point they considered the title Silent Night, Evil Night. Um, So it wasn't exactly the first time that a play on on that had been used, but I actually really like the title a lot. Yeah, and so with regards to holiday themed horror movies. There are actually quite a few, quite a few killer Santa flicks. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Which is crazy to think about. Uh, we've mentioned a few of them already. Um, we've mentioned the tales from the crypt, uh, segment from the 1972 film and all through the house. Uh, that actually was redone later for the tales from the crypt, um, television series. Uh, and then also you mentioned, um, that you had seen Christmas evil 1980, um, and just doing research. Here's one I haven't heard of before, but another one that came out in 1980 was called To All a Good Night. And then actually one that's 
crazy that I saw a few years ago uh, was Santa's Sleigh, once again, S-L-A-Y, starring Bill Goldberg of wrestling fame, uh, who is a killer Santa that goes on a rampage. That one was pretty crazy. Oh, that actually sounds like a lot of fun. It's it is pretty fun. It's like really, really cheesy. I have it on DVD, but I bought it from uh, Blockbuster. I used to work at Blockbuster, and uh, I bought it when they were selling a used copy. And it's pretty scratched up. It doesn't play very well. But uh, I, that movie, I haven't seen it in a while. But it was pretty cheesy and fun. And that's something that I think we both know as as kind of big cinephiles and uh, we we both love a lot of genres including the horror genre but i don't think that a lot of kind of casual viewers are as familiar with the non-halloween horror films yeah i think it's something i think that in the early days of the slasher film uh holiday based slashers were kind of all the rage due to the popularity of Halloween. And I think nowadays, you know, that's not really a thing. And so maybe people who aren't into sort of golden age slasher films might might not be aware of that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just thinking about kind of winter and and Christmas themed ones, there's like, you just listed a bunch of killer Santa flicks, but uh, you know, outside of those, there's stuff like Jack Frost, which was uh, very infamous because a lot of, uh, uh, unfortunate parents rented the horror movie Jack Frost as opposed to the family friendly <laughs> kids film Jack Frost. I think that was that was probably a very common mistake made. I could imagine. Uh so yeah, there there're quite a few and then and then even out you know outside of uh Christmas there's some really good holiday horror movies. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I say, that was a big trend for people trying to kind of capitalize on the success of of Halloween, which had been so successful uh, when it came out. Uh, So why don't we uh, kind of talk about some of those non-Halloween holiday horror movies? I love this because, uh, like you just said, I'm super into that. So uh, a while back, I decided that I wanted to find a horror film or slasher film. I'm good with either one, but I was really looking for slasher films uh, for each holiday of the year, uh, which is you can pretty much track one down for almost every holiday. I've seen some for Easter, but I've never found one that I really like for Easter that I can think of. Um, so I, I would love to, to be able to, to put that as another feather in my cap. Uh, but I did track down uh, horror movies for almost every other holiday that I like. I won't list them all, but I'll give a top five. And this isn't necessarily in order, even though I can easily say that the, the top one here is my fave, uh, which is the original 1974 Black Christmas. Uh, Bob Clark, known uh, to most for his uh, Christmas classic, A Christmas Story, uh, made this 1974 slasher film, Black Christmas. And I just really love that movie. You and I went to see it on the big screen. Was it just last Christmas that we saw that last year? You know, I think it was. Yeah. And I mean, I'd seen it before um, many times, but just seeing it on the big screen was something special at the retro film series. That's our obligatory retro reference for this episode. And uh, it was just a really special uh, experience. And I just really think that film is great. Preceded the slasher movie craze preceded Halloween by a number of years. And it also stars, um, um, 
John Saxon, uh, who we lost this year, sadly. Um, so that's a great film. I would recommend the 1974 black Christmas. I also really enjoy the original April fool's day. There's a, a remake later. That's, uh, uh, but April fool's day, the original, I really like a lot. It's got a lot of people who were involved in other films that you may recognize from the eighties, including, uh, Amy Steele, uh, from Friday the 13th part two. I won't say too much about April fool's day because there's some twists and turns that I wouldn't want to spoil. But if people have never seen April fool's day, highly recommended from me, but be expecting some twists and turns. I think they took people by surprise at the time and maybe disappointed some. I've never seen that one. So I will have to watch that one, but I'll, I'll probably try to wait until April fool's day uh, to actually watch it. Yeah. Well, it's really good. In my opinion, it, uh, it's one of those VHS covers that uh, terrified me as a child. I know I've said on here before that I was not really a huge horror movie fan as a kid, but um, strangely there, the department store roses in my hometown had a rental section at the front of the store as you were leaving. And I always remember as a little kid seeing on the shelf, April fool's day, which has this girl, uh, the cover has this girl walking into a party and she's holding a knife behind her back. And she also has like this a ponytail braid that's actually in a hangman's noose. And it just creeped me out as a kid. And when I finally watched it later, it actually is a kind of comedy. Uh, well, it's not, it's not a comedy. It's a great movie, but it's got a lot of comedic elements and uh, it's sort of a fun watch. Uh, and it has kind of a Friday the 13th feel to it. I really like that one a lot. Number three on my list, even though actually probably not number three, it'd probably be higher than that, is uh, The Mutilator, a.k.a. Fall Break. Uh, I'm counting it because Fall Break is a holiday, and uh, I just really love The Mutilator. It's one I came to a bit more recently around the time. I saw it um, not long before Arrow's um, wonderful Blu-ray release uh, came out, and I just, I've become obsessed with that film. I'm sure we've talked about it on here before. Uh I've collected all this uh, paraphernalia from that movie autographs from cast and crew. Uh, just can't say enough about the mutilator and how much I love it. Um, and ho- we'll probably undoubtedly do that one eventually on the show. So that was number three on my list. Uh, number four, I'm going to put the original um, my bloody Valentine. Uh, one of those great Canadian slashers set on Valentine's day. If you can get the unrated version with all the blood and gore put back in, highly recommend that also really enjoyed the remake of that movie. Uh, it was a 3d remake that came out, uh, well, several years ago, many years ago now. Um, but in the, in the two thousands, the, my bloody Valentine. And then finally on my list, blood rage. It took me a while to track down a Thanksgiving horror movie that I enjoy. A lot of people talk about thanks killing. I'm going to go ahead and say it. Not a big fan of thanks killing, uh, but uh, blood rage, AKA nightmare at shadow woods, uh, which is also available from arrow video filled that void for me. It's a uh, pretty twisted and cheesy low budget slasher film that features the uh, uh, memorable. That's not cranberry sauce line. So, uh, blood rage uh, also i'm aware that there's another thanksgiving slasher a lot of people talk about called home sweet home which i'll confess i own but have not gotten around to watching yet so i have not watched uh blood rage i, I know you mentioned it um, kind of before the thanksgiving holiday um so I, I might have to watch that one next next thanksgiving you'd like it uh, yeah, I did that one. That one's on my on my watch list uh, for sure. So I also have a, a top five list. Uh, there might be a little bit of overlap in our lists, uh, but and this is in no particular order. So Black Christmas, the nineteen seventy four film. I mean, this is one of the movies uh, like you kind of touched on, West, that the horror, or the slasher genre really owes a lot of credit to. Uh, I think Alice Sweet Alice may have come out 
a little bit before this or, or around the same time, but uh, you know, this is certainly one of the more impactful films on the slasher subgenre. Uh, I would also like to uh, give a plug to the 2019 remake. Uh, I, I don't think it was perfect. Uh, there were some areas where I definitely thought it could have been improved, but I liked the overall message that it was, uh, you know, trying to, that, that it was kind of trying to give with it. And uh, I thought it gave its own kind of updated flair to uh, Black Christmas while still kind of giving a lot of nods to the original. I don't uh, want to. Better... <laughs> oh, go ahead. Oh, oh no worries. Before you move, I don't, I don't want to cut in on you. Uh, I was going to say, now, I personally was not a huge fan of the 2019 Black Christmas remake. Uh, I can see kind of what you liked about it. I thought the first of it was better, and as it went on, it got gradually, it lost me more and more. I will say, though, you didn't mention, uh, did you Did you see or, and or care for the 2006 remake of Black Christmas? Uh, you know, I did see it, and I thought it was kind of fun and mindless but yes. it just it didn't it didn't uh resonate with me quite as much as the 2019 one even though i did think the 2019 one was uh oh, oh, was was kind of flawed particularly the ending i thought just went like way overboard yeah uh and i thought the first kind of two-thirds of it were a lot stronger and then i just i thought it went kind of off the deep end um even though I, I, I understand, but I think what what helps me to appreciate is I understood what they were trying to to get across in that sure. point. Um, I also I loved Better Watch Out, which was another kind of more recent. Uh, that was a kind of a more recent film. It's kind of a, a horror thriller, and it, it has some some decent twists along the way. Uh, Gremlins. This one I would count as a a horror film. Uh, it's got a lot of kind of dark comedy and and some horror moments in there, and it's just a really fun film. That's one I I actually rewatched uh, a couple weeks back. Uh, uh, I'm gonna throw um, the Lodge on there as well. Uh, that was a I think 2019 film, and it. I definitely had kind of a The Shining vibe to it, uh, and was super psychological. And then I gotta, I gotta put the mutilator on there. Um, I, I, I saw that you in the show notes that you listed it as, as a uh, uh, one of your favorites, and I was like, you know what? All right, if that counts as a holiday pick, I'm gonna have to put that on there because all breaks a holiday. <laughs> yeah, it it, it counts, uh, and that's just one. Like both of us are are big. Uh, the mutilator evangelists it's, yes. it's very near and dear to our heart yes it's, um uh and and i won't speak for you but i'll say for me it's a lot because of uh, the fact that it's just kind of this campy fun low budget horror film but also it was shot in north carolina and uh you know it had a cast and crew of uh you know a bunch of locals and uh, being a north carolina native i just kind of love that the yes. history behind this film i also love yes the history behind the film exactly i also love that the mutilator is a labor of love like if you if you find out anything about buddy cooper who's a very accessible guy he's come to so many of the screenings that i've been to uh including one that i went to uh hosted by our friend kenny uh for his onset cinema that took place at the beach house uh which was amazing for for a super fan like myself uh but but buddy cooper was there he's the director and, and it's just such a labor of love to hear him and the, and the rest of the people who worked on the film talk about it i just i love that but yeah could could, could go on about the mutilator for hours so i won't do that we'll have to devote an entire episode to that i love that. uh 
it, it is it is worthy of Zoe Woodfin's episode. Um, but as I was kind of compiling that list of, of the top five, it just kind of got me thinking about a lot of other holiday horror films and just kind of how many there are. Uh, you know, you mentioned My Bloody Valentine. There was the remake of that. Uh, I know what you did last summer. I think you could even kind of consider that a bit of a holiday film, like the summer holiday. Yeah. Uh, so they're are just a ton of like non Halloween horror movies, uh, and uh, I do Christmas specifically kind of has quite a few. Oh, so many. Yeah, <laughs> including including like you said in recent years with Better Watch Out, and uh, there was a, several others. I can't even remember all the names. Uh, I know Krampus was really popular a few years ago. Um, yeah, so, so Christmas has kind of had a big comeback. Another one, uh, honorable mention I should throw in that I really like is happy birthday to me. It's another one of those Canadian, uh, slasher movies. That's pretty awesome. Oh, was that a, oh, well, yeah, I guess, um, yeah. Birthday. birthday. That birthday. that counts as a holiday. That's the holiday. Ah, uh, yeah. And then another kind of more recent Christmas one. I think that I don't know the timing on it, if it came out before or after Krampus, but definitely, in the same vein as this yeah, kind of nouveau horror wave of, uh, of having holiday horror movies. Um, but it was called all through the house. Uh, and it just was cracking yeah. me up looking through that list of specifically Christmas ones and noting how many were, uh, like a, the title was like a line from a, a Christmas oh, song yeah. or, or a riff, on a christmas lyric yeah for sure it's quite funny even uh, i even think midsummer you could count that uh, as a holiday yeah i think that one could count as a a holiday horror movie as well yeah i can see that hey here's a question and if you don't know don't worry because i already said i don't know can you think of a of a good easter horror movie you know not not off the top of my head no uh, I, I'm I sure there probably is one. I know they exist. Like I, I have some to be honest, but I'm not going to call them out because I've never seen one that I really like to be honest. So I don't want to call any of the ones out that I could think of that say I didn't like them. Um, but if people who listen have Easter horror movie suggestions, shout them out on our social media. I would love to, to add a good Easter horror movie to my, uh, to my movie watching and good can be interpreted loosely. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so I did a quick Google search for Easter horror movies, and there are quite a lot. It turns out includes including Easter Bunny, Kill Kill, hmm. and Bunny, the Killer thing, but Critters Two, the main course, is also listed. Oh, okay, All and. Right. Yeah, I'm not sure why I don't remember that being said at Easter or anything. You know, I've never seen any of the Critters films, so I couldn't speak to that. Oh, okay. Hold up. So, according to this brief synopsis, uh, I think it just says something about um, a horde of monsters attacks a town after their eggs get mistaken for Easter eggs. (laughs) Okay. All right, sure. Uh, and a man dressed up as the Easter Bunny gets devoured. Nice, nice. So you know what, Critters uh, Two, the main course might be might be a good one. Uh this one is not specifically Easter, but uh, Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. Okay, that one could be a good Easter 
ish horror film. I've never seen that one. Whenever you say the title of it, I always get it confused in my head with Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter from Hammer Films. <laughs> <laughs> Very different movies. Uh, but Jesus Christ, Vampire Hunters, that's a that's a good one. It's uh, exactly what you think it is. <laughs> uh, but uh, so why don't we uh, why don't we rate Silent Night, Deadly Night? Sounds good. So, um yeah, I struggled a little bit. I say that every time, but uh, with how to rate this one, uh, you know, this movie, as you said earlier, it's definitely a flawed film uh, when you were talking about the flaws, but how you still enjoyed it. Uh, that's the best way I can think to describe it is this movie's trash, but it's fun trash and I really enjoy it. Um, I think that it is in a lot of ways a pretty run of the mill slasher movie. It was obviously made at a time when slashers could be produced on the cheap and make tons of money, as can be seen by the relatively low budget and relatively high box office of this film. Um, It has some really unique elements. Uh, As we've said, it wasn't the first killer Santa movie, but it kind of like launched that idea um, to a new plane. I think that the score and soundtrack, the work from Perry Botkin and Morgan Ames, really elevates this film. I think a sense of knowing exactly what it is and what they're making uh, kind of adds a sense of macabre fun to this movie. It's one that's in my holiday rotation that I watch pretty regularly. It's no Black Christmas, but it's it's a lot of fun. And for that reason, I'm going to give it a 3.5 on a scale of 0 to 5. It's a 3.5 for me. <laughs> Interestingly, uh, I'm I'm also going 3.5. Uh, yeah, I I don't think it's a perfect film, but uh, it's it's a really fun watch, and it does have uh, I think some kind of thought provoking themes in there, whether those are intentional or or not. And it all it just kind of seems like anyone who was involved with this was having a jolly good time. Uh, and there seems to be kind of a sense of self-awareness that kind of pervades throughout. Uh, there are some kind of issues with some uh, pretty gaping plot holes. And there are also some technical issues, kind of like we mentioned about some of the restored scenes. The The film quality was uh, uh, pretty bad. It was just like super dark and grainy. Um, but uh, I think a lot of the technical elements outside of that, like the the score uh, and the soundtrack being phenomenal and the effects uh, being shockingly good, uh, you know, really help this to be a, a much b- a better film than you would kind of uh, expect going in necessarily. So, yeah, I, I, this was my first watch, uh, but I think, I think I might add this to my uh, nice list to watch every Christmas. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh it's on my naughty list to watch every Christmas, but uh you know, I check it twice. Uh so I will say also this movie started a franchise. There are um four, I think four or there, maybe five, I can't remember right now, films in the franchise. Um Actually, I think there are five. Uh, and then there's a remake uh, that came out a few years ago. Uh, real quickly, I'll throw in one of my couldn't fit it anywhere else, so why not throw it in at the end bits of trivia, which is I just wanted to say, since Silent Night, Deadly Night 2 recycles so much of this movie that who knows if we'll ever do an episode dedicated to it, that it's interesting that the star of Silent Night, Deadly Night 2, who plays the younger brother Ricky, uh, a guy named Eric Freeman, is a native of Raleigh, North Carolina, which is where I'm sitting as we're recording this. Um, so I just wanted to say that, 
uh, because I find that very interesting. Apparently, he kind of dropped off the grid for a few years and they couldn't find him for commentary tracks and stuff, but recently resurfaced in recent years uh, and has attended some screenings and things like that, which is great to hear. That is a very fun fact. Yes, indeed. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you picked this one. So uh, this was this was an awesome first time watch for me. Uh, and uh, I I liked it. Um, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was kind of fun, though, because I was actually surprised that it was a first time watch for me. Because I was like, oh, I've seen this. And then that ended up being Christmas Evil. Yeah. Which I, <laughs> I need to watch now so I can so we can go back and forth on that. That's that's your homework. I'll, I'll have to you'll have to watch that and tell me how it compares to Silent Night Deadly Night. <laughs> uh, yeah, but thank you guys for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, and you know what else we would really appreciate if you haven't already done so? Head over to iTunes, leave us a rating, leave us a review, and go ahead and subscribe on the Apple Podcasts app or Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are available. Uh, and you can follow us at celluloid fiends on Facebook and Twitter, as well as celluloid fiends pod on Instagram. And we've been doing a lot of the picks, but you know what we, we would love is to hear kind of what you guys want us to review. Uh, we, we keep it genre agnostic. Uh, you know, our only rule is that it has to be at least 10 years old. Um, but apart from that, it's uh, you know, it's fair game. Um, you know, we just we want to hear what you guys think of some of the movies we're watching. Uh, we want to hear what movies you want us to watch. So send us some fan picks. Uh, if you want to follow me, you can check me out at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram. And you can read my writing on film at cupofmo.com. And I write about tech at techuplife.com. And this is Wes Clifton signing out for the evening. I will um, uh, just kind of going along with what Mo just said. Uh, we love doing those fan picks. I know we've got, uh, I think, about three more that are on our list right now to do that we'll you know, hopefully be interspersing here and there. Uh, but, yes, yeah, send, send us your fan picks. We'd love to hear those. Um, also, you know, reach out on social media and tell us your favorite holiday horror movies, and if you, especially if you have a good Easter one, let us know. I'm very intrigued. Uh, but yeah, so this is Wes Clifton. You can always find me on social media at Cliff Weston. Uh, and if you want to check out some of my fiction writing, I'd love that. It's on my website. Well, you can find out more about it on my website, wdclifton.wordpress.com. And remember, be kind, rewind. Ho, 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 ho. Santa's watching, Santa's creeping, now you're nodding, now you're sleeping, were you good for mom and dad, Santa knows if you've been bad, there might be a treat for you in Santa's bag of toys.